morning, everybody. Thank you for choosing to worship with us. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Greg Baker, and I serve here as the senior pastor. It's my privilege to be ministering the word to you today. Thank you for the reading and the special music and for all that goes into a service like this. Before we get going into the text this morning, I want to just let everybody know sort of how we're going to be handling Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following. We have quite a few people worshiping with us who are new to us. And there are many who are here worshiping with us who are also new to the Christian faith. And so for that reason, as I was thinking this week about how to present these words, I basically had a choice of two paths. We could cover verses 11 through 14 all in one sermon, in which case as you may have noticed, as Dirk read to us this morning, that's, a, that's an action-packed three verses, and the sermon would have been easy to preach because I would just cover the tops of those words very quickly, and that would be about all we'd have time for. Or I could settle in on some of these words in particular. The trouble with doing that is that the instant you do that, things tend to get long. I don't want to belabor our series through Ephesians. I don't want us to get bogged down into rabbit trails and stuck in potholes. But there was something in me that didn't like, didn't like skipping over this too quickly. And for the sake of all of those folks who are either new to us or new to the Christian faith in general, I think it would be good for our body as a whole to slow down, especially in this section, just a little bit. It is okay in the middle of a race to back your pace off and make sure you're getting everything you need so that you can continue the race forward. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to settle in a little more slowly on some of these specific words, namely apostles, and prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. The way we define those words has a lot to do with where we end up in life, believe it or not. And so I want us to make sure we're all on the same page, and for the sake of the whole of our body, we are going to slow it down just a little bit and settle in on these words. But I want you to know that decision was not done lightly, not taken up lightly. And so I hope you'll join me today uh, as we slow down just a hair and cover two of these words. We'll have two points today. The points are very simple. Apostles and prophets. There you go. You can get ahead on your outline. Apostles and prophets. So let's pray and we will dive into this material after we pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind. Give us grace to understand these words very well. And I pray that you would help us to arrive at a New Testament definition of apostles and prophets, for they indeed are your gifts to us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is not a children's church Sunday, so whenever we have the children in here, I like to direct a little something to the kids. Okay, so kids, I've got, I've got something for you here. Okay, children, are you listening? Children, I've got a question for you. What marks a really good what, what makes 
something to be a really good gift and what makes something to be maybe a not so good gift. You ever thought about that? Well, let's, let's try these on very quickly, okay? A, a gift that is really good is something, number one, that you'll use, right? What, what good is a gift if it just sits over in the corner and you never pick it up? A gift, a really good gift is something that you protect, right? I'll illustrate that in a moment, children. And a really good gift is something that, number three, you use for its intended purposes. In other words, if you consider a really good gift a bicycle, you're not going to use it to try to climb a tree. Or if you did, you would probably only try it once, right? Okay, children, I want to illustrate this for you. Okay, so children, I, I want you to direct your attention. And I, I didn't tell him ahead of time I was going to do this, but to Mason back here. Mason turned 16, and Mason was given truck. Everybody go, ooh, this is big stuff for a 16-year-old. Mason, do you just let your truck sit in the driveway just to look at it? No. In fact, when you're, did your dad like toss you the keys literally? Was it like a dad-son moment? And you're like, thanks, dad. <laughs> okay. Now, you drive that truck around, don't you? Have you driven it really slowly down Main Street yet so everybody could pay attention to your gift? No, but he will, children, someday. Now, Mason, I got a question for you. How would you feel if your younger brother took your keys, went into the driveway, and started your truck without you being there? <laughs> you wouldn't like that very much, would you? Because a good gift is to be used and to be protected. Keep your dirty fingers off of it, younger siblings. Okay. I, 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 I did warn her that I was going to be coming to her. We got Miss Lakin, children. Everybody look at Miss Lakin in the back. Miss Lakin, mind, would you mind standing up? Miss Lakin, would you, mind, would you mind waving your left hand in the air facing us? Okay. Does everybody see what is on Miss Lakin's hand? What is it? What is on her hand? It's, it's, yes, Charlotte. What kind of ring? Is it a diamond ring? Ooh. Miss Lakin, is that diamond ring set in gold? White gold. Wow. That's an expensive gift, isn't it? Given to her by her now husband, Mr. Dillon. How come you didn't put that in a box somewhere, Lakin, where nobody could find it since it's so expensive? Why are you wearing it out where everybody can see it? That's right. She wants everybody to see it. Now, Lakin, Lakin is, is a, you know, she's a, 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 a petite woman. Um, I don't know how else to say it. For as, as petite as she is, Miss Lakin, what would happen to me if I tried to come rip that ring off your finger. <laughs> so in other words, I would have a fight on my hands if I tried to take that from you. Because her gift, though it's to be displayed, is also to be protected, isn't it? Thanks for playing along this way. When I was 11 years old, I was given a baseball bat great gift. At the start of the season, 
Now, I used that baseball bat. I hit ball after ball after ball after ball with that bat. One day at the start of practice, my friend picked up my bat, picked up a rock, threw the rock into the air, and whacked the rock with my bat. Took a chunk out of it. And I was furious with him. Why? Because that was a gift to be used. Hit as many balls with it as you want. But it's not to be used to hit rocks, is it? It's not for its intended purpose. So children, would you agree that a really good gift is one that you use, one that you protect, and one that you use it for what it's supposed to be used for? Would you agree with that, children? Okay. That brings us to our discussion today. Let's go back in our passage to chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And what we're told right here is that Christ has given us some gifts. In fact, there's three different ways it says we've been given a gift. He gave gifts according to his measure. He's generous in giving us presents and gifts. And like any great gift, these are gifts that are supposed to be used and gifts that are supposed to be protected and gifts that are supposed to be used for their intended purposes. Just like any other great gift. Okay? Now, let's get some context as we understand this teaching. In verses 4, 1 through 6, uh, chapter 4 rather, verses 1 through 6, we're told that Christians are supposed to walk in unity. It's a gentle walk. Walk worthily of the grace with which you've been called. And then we're told in verses 7 through 10 that Christ gives gifts. And he wants these gifts to be for every believer. If you've asked Jesus to save you from your sins, you have a gift. And then, in verses 11 16, we're told that those gifts are not for you. You've, you've been given a gift to wield. You've been given a gift to use. Not for your own sake. You've been given a gift for the building up of everybody else. So your gift is actually for everybody else, and everybody else's gifts are for you to enjoy. Okay? We don't selfishly hoard our one little gift, and nobody gets all the gifts just themselves. We are, however, given all the gifts as God equips those around us. And so the church is this, people bringing their gifts into the community and ministering to each other and helping each other. Pouring them out on each other. That's how the body grows. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says there's a lot of different types of gifts. But here in Ephesians, he says that there, he limits the discussion to a few gifts. He's not saying this is all that there is. He's making a point that these particular gifts, which is a smaller group of what are many, are to be used for the building up. Now, that's what today's sermon is going to cover. We're going to study what the gifts of apostleship and prophecy are. Jesus says he gives each of his gifts for the building up of the church, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. 
And two of those gifts that he's given us for that task, among others, are apostleship and prophecy. Does everybody see that from the passage? So, we had better really learn what apostleship and prophecy is, what it's used for, its purpose, so that we can wield it correctly. We can use it and display it correctly. Use it for its intended purposes like all gifts are supposed to be used for. Right, everybody? Right. Okay. Let's move on to our first point. Now, I'm going to give you a warning. Our first point is very simply apostles. (laughs) I'm going to warn you very quickly here, okay? I've got four slides, I'm sorry, three slides on apostles and one slide on prophets, okay? So when we get to the end of the third slide on, on apostles, and we're only a, and we're, most of our time is used, rest easy, we're not going to spend equal time on prophets, okay? So, apostles, point number one. The apostolic title was one that was frequently abused. The apostolic title is one that was frequently abused. Now, even in Paul's own lifetime, people were abusing the title apostle. And if you want to write down 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, or even if you want to turn there, and I, I will show you how people came along and abused that title. You can look up the verses as I reference them. The Apostle Paul is writing to a different church, which is just across the Aegean Sea from this church at Ephesus. It's probably only 60 miles as the crow flies. This is a church that was, taking, that was going on the exact same time the church at Ephesus was. Contemporaries to the people at Ephesians. So you can imagine, just across the mountains, 60 miles away, something like this taking place at one of our sister churches. Okay? The Apostle Paul says that there were people in that church calling themselves super apostles. The Greek word is the word huper. Literally, huper apostles. That's why we translate it super. Maybe some of you have heard of the overman, the ubermenschen, the beyond guy. That's what they were calling themselves. We are beyond apostles. It's hard to translate that exactly. I think super apostles does a really great job. That's how I would have translated it. And these super apostles claimed to be on the same ground, on the same footing, in fact, even above, Paul and Peter, James and John, and the original 12 apostles that Christ sent out. We're told in chapter 10, verse 10, that some of those super apostles were absolutely dynamic Now, friends, this is an important lesson. Just because somebody draws a crowd doesn't mean any old fool or tyrant can draw a crowd. It's not that hard to do. These people were dynamic speakers and were drawing huge crowds to themselves. Those who would attend their rallies would brag about how professionally trained these speakers were. They were quite dynamic. But they also ridiculed the Apostle Paul 
for his seemingly weak speech. The Apostle Paul was a man, he'll later say in 2 Corinthians, who had been flawed multiple times. Imagine that. 39 lashes across one's back many times. The scar tissue on his back was probably such that he couldn't stand up straight. He was probably always hunched over. He had been stoned to death. A few years ago at the men's ski day, I skied over a rock and sort of pinwheeled down the hill. My knee hit a rock and split open, took several stitches. And you know, that bone that hit the rock to this day is still swollen. Paul had bumps and scar tissue and bruises all over his body. It's doubtful that he could speak with any power, even when he wanted to, because of the persecutions he endured for Christ. And these super apostles were ridiculing him. These super apostles were charlatans, he says in chapter 11, verse 13, masquerading as true apostles, but were deceivers. The word masquerading has that idea of taking a mask, like at a costume party, taking it on, putting it off, taking it on, putting it on, taking it off. In front of people, they would put on the mask that says, I'm an apostle. When people weren't watching, they would ridicule them as Now, friends, listen. Children need to hear this too. There are people out there who want to hurt you. And they are just as happy to use religious-sounding words to take your money out of your wallet as anything else. They're happy to do that. And to your face, they'll say one thing and masquerade. As soon as you leave their presence, they mock you as fools. How do you know when they're authentic and when they're false? Well, Paul goes on in chapter 11, verse 4. These are people who were preaching a different Christ, they were preaching a different spirit, and they were preaching a different gospel. This is how how Paul says, you know they're deceiving you. They're preaching something different than what the other apostles were saying. Because we can be really kind, right, to the first century Corinthian Christians. This guy who looks nice and this guy who looks nice both say they're speaking for Christ. Who am I supposed to believe? And the apostle Paul says, the one who's preaching consistently with the apostolic message of Christ That's how you know. So this is a title that was frequently abused and remains today a title that is frequently abused. I did something perhaps foolish. I googled this week 
modern apostles. And I got hit on every religious tradition that you can possibly imagine. There are many thousands of people from all different stripes of faith that are doing this exact same thing today. Okay? Let's go to our next point. Okay, so there's lots of people claiming to be apostles. Fair enough. What are the requirements to be an apostle? Well, as I searched around modern apostles, the argument kind of goes like this. I'll simplify it. Nobody's saying it this simply or this arrogantly, but let me simplify it. Here's the basic argument. Who are you to say I'm not an apostle? That's basically how the argument goes. Who are you to say I'm not? Why are you limiting God? Well, let me just stop there. You know what? I'm, I'm going to give you that one. I, I don't think I should, but I'm going to give it to you real quick. Okay? Let's say for a moment that in humility, I will not, I, Greg Baker, will not dismiss your apostolic claim out of hand. There is, however, one who can. And he speaks for himself. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus tells us what an authentic apostle is. So let's take Greg Baker out of it and put Jesus in there. What does Jesus say an authentic apostle is? Okay. Well, first requirement, an apostle is chosen publicly and directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. You could even say by God himself. For the apostle Paul says an apostle by the will of God. So, an apostle is chosen publicly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that in none of these instances are people choosing. It's Jesus who chooses. He chooses by his own sovereign will when, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, or Luke chapter 6, for example, the Lord Jesus spent all night, the night before, in prayer. And then he gathered bunches of people together... And from that large crowd, publicly drew out 12. I forgot to put this on the screen. I should have done it before. But after Judas, one of the 12, abandoned the Lord, Peter, in Acts chapter 1, said, We need to choose another. And it's one who was with us from the beginning and is an eyewitness to Christ. And they allowed God to make that selection in front of all these others. And then when God called the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was traveling with a team of people, and Christ appeared out of the blue. And there were all these witnesses around who could confirm that it was Christ who had chosen him. So an authentic apostle is a person chosen directly and publicly by the Lord Jesus. The apostles are to provide eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. That's their role. In Acts 4.33, they were testifying that Jesus had risen from the dead. They saw his risen body and, like Thomas, put his hands on the scars or in his side. They saw him eat the bread and the fish. They were witnesses 
after the resurrection. And we're told in Acts that there were over 120 in all. Provide eyewitnesses. That number three, they're to teach the biblical doctrine of Christ. That's another one of their jobs. The biblical doctrine of Christ. In Acts chapter 2.42, the church continued in the apostles' doctrine. In Acts 3.18, Peter gets up and he teaches and he says, don't you see that the Christ had to suffer and rise again? This is what the apostle Paul was doing in Acts chapter 17. He went to the Jews and he said, the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer. And Jesus is the Christ. He was unfolding, they were teaching Old Testament doctrine and showing how Christ fulfilled that. That was their job. And then fourth, they were to perform public and undeniable miracles to confirm their message. They were to, they were to perform public and undeniable miracles to confirm their message. In Acts 2, 43, we're told that many signs and wonders were being done. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, uh, well, it, we're told that there were many signs being done. Peter heals a man outside of Solomon's, outside of the temple. Large throngs of crowds were witnessing this. The Pharisees and Sadducees couldn't deny it. They're like, we know that this guy was lame and now he walks. Jesus says it wasn't, Peter says it wasn't by me, but by the resurrected Lord whom you crucified that this man walks. When the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus, it says that he would touch handkerchiefs and those handkerchiefs would then be taken to people who would be healed simply by touching the handkerchief. Now I want to reiterate that all of these were done in an undeniable and public fashion. And they were done without limit. So, if somebody, I've never had anybody do this personally, but if somebody came to me and said, I am an authentic apostle, I would say, you have seen the risen Lord in a public setting filled with multiple spiritual leaders, Christ came and called you to where everybody else could hear that. Can I see a doctrinal statement? Is your teaching in keeping with other scripture? And if it's yes to all those, get in my car let us drive to Salt Lake City to the Children's Hospital where there is a ward filled with pediatric cancer patients. You empty out that ward and I will call you. Until such a time, Christ has spoken and you are not. And all of you have every right to say as much. Not because it's your words, but because it's Christ's words. Now, what were the function of the apostles? This is our third point. It's to lay a one-time doctrinal foundation 
for Christ's church. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.11 says that a foundation is being laid that can't be relayed, and that foundation is Christ. In Matthew 16.18, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build the church. For uh, Ephesians 2.20, we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In Jude chapter 1, verse 3, Jude, by the way, was not an apostle. And he says the faith was delivered once for all. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he says God spoke to us at times past and many times in sundry ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son. So, their job was to lay the doctrinal foundation of the church. Number two, their job was to preach the gospel around the world, and we're told that that's, in fact, what they did, and sometimes they needed a little prodding. The emperor came along and started persecuting them. They'd have to move. Sometimes against their will, but they moved. Nobody ever had to move the Apostle Paul. Grass never grew under that man's feet. He was out planting, winning souls, planting churches, taking the gospel to the world, to the ends of the world. Furthermore, their job, these apostles' jobs, was to train the next generation of Christian leaders. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verses 18 and following, trains the Ephesian elders. He tells Timothy, his protege, the same that you heard from me, I want you to give to faithful men who can then shepherd the This was the apostolic function. To provide a foundation of doctrine to give eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, to confirm that message with public and undeniable miracles, to take this message to the ends of the world, to obey the direct command of Christ, and to train the next generation of Christian leaders. I'm going to apply this in a minute. Let's move on to our second point, prophets. Who were the prophets? Now it has to be admitted that apostles in the New Testament are far more prominent than prophets. I didn't do an analysis on it, but I would say for every 20 mentions of the apostles, there's one mention of the prophets. It might be less than that, it might be more than that, but it's a pretty, it's imbalanced the apostles definitely take center stage early in the book of Acts in particular. Prophets were present, though, in the first church, and they were there to assist the apostles and encourage the saints. In Acts chapter 15, we're told that uh, they were in a place ministering to the saints. They were encouraging. They were teaching. In fact, we're told that prophecy isn't just telling the future, but Prophecy can be singing. Prophecy can be worshiping. Prophecy back then had a much broader definition than what it has now. But they were there to assist the apostles and to encourage the saints through teaching, through music, and through much more. Second, New Testament prophets helped to direct the first generation of church leaders. In Acts 11.29, a prophet named Agabus predicted that there would be a famine. And this gave the church leaders a heads up. And they 
collected an offering to send to the churches that would be greatly affected by this famine. And do you know who they sent on that mission of going around sending this gift? They sent Saul, soon to be Paul, the apostle. This was a dry run, if you will, of his future missionary endeavors. And so the the prophets, rather, were there to assist, were there to help guide in decision-making. Number three, New Testament prophets were required to use their gifts in accordance with apostolic teaching. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29-33, there was some stuff going on there in the church that Paul wasn't too sure of. Apparently, prophets would stand up and would speak in a foreign language. Some of them would speak in a nonsense language. Some of them would just get up and begin speaking, and to make matters worse, they were doing it all at once. And so the Apostle Paul said, let me give you instruction on how this is to happen. And then he says, at the end of that discussion, let the prophets minister according to this this apostolic rule. In other words, any prophet that says, I received direct revelation from God, and I don't have to do what the apostles say, write them off. They are not prophets. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. And fourth, just like with the apostles, New Testament prophecy was frequently imitated by deceivers. New Testament prophecy was frequently imitated by deceivers. In fact, in 1 John 4.1, John says, Brethren, don't believe every story. For there are many false teachers that have gone out into the world. He says, instead of just believing whatever people tell you, Test them. Now, we've spoken at length in other venues in this church about the prophetic test. We're not going to get into that right now, but I've got a couple verses up here for you to chase down if you want to refresh your memory. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, a prophet is supposed to speak according to the Bible. And if he has a prophecy against written scripture, he or she is not a prophet. Or, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and following. If that prophet says that something will come true, and it doesn't come true, and keep in mind, he has to be 100%. If he doesn't bat a 1,000, which for those non-baseball fans is perfect, if he doesn't bat a 1,000, he bats 9.99. He or she ain't a prophet. And Deuteronomy says, don't listen to them, don't be afraid of them. Just read them. Okay, so let's get back. We're going to make some applications now, okay? I've got three of them. Let's get back to what we spoke to at the very beginning. Number one, Christ wants us to guard his gift. But more than that, 
he wants us to use it. Okay? Christ gave apostles. Christ gave prophets. He gave these apostles and these prophets to give us the doctrine that we treasure. He gave us these apostles and prophets to be eyewitness testimony, trustworthy eyewitness testimony that we are not of all men most to be pitied. That Christ did rise from the grave. That Jesus really is who he said he was. And don't you think all of those people, all around those apostles, would have loved nothing better than to have said, you faked it. You didn't really heal that person. Christ didn't really rise from the dead. We found his body. No, no. As Paul told one of these Jewish leaders that had imprisoned him. None of this was done under a rock. It was all done in full public view for everybody to see. And Jesus has given us these gifts. And these men who taught and who performed miracles and testified to the resurrection of Christ, he's given these as gifts to you Let's not lose sight of that gift. Yes, we protect it. I don't want this sermon to be entirely negative. So the question is, how do we use it? How do you begin to wield this gift for good? Remember? Lakin got that wedding ring, and she probably has worn it every day of her life since. She uses it. Mason drives his truck. I use my dad. God wants us to use these gifts. Number two, God wants us to apply these apostolic gifts to every conceivable situation. Every conceivable situation. Let me just give a few. You really blew it. I mean, really, for a long time in your life, you blew it. Does that mean you can't be used by Christ? You'll only ever be a pew sitter. You're happy to just come along and watch, but you don't have a role to encourage or teach others. Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who says, look, why did Christ save me to show you that none of y'all could be too bad to be used? I'm the example of the worst case scenario. You weren't worse than me get ministered. Right? Or a friend deeply hurt you and betrayed you. You did nothing for it. They hurt you. They come back to you and they say, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Well, have you read what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians? 
or what the Apostle Matthew said in his book? Turn and forgive and receive such a one. Be like the be like the the, the prodigal son's father who receives sinners back with open arms. You think that will apply to your life? There's a madman who's in a position of power and he's threatening to rain down weapons upon you. On you. For no good reason. God will turn even something like that to your good, to his glory? Have you read in Ephesians how, written by the Apostle Paul, how God controls the heavens? Which means he also controls the earth beneath? There is nothing outside of his power or control. He loves you and he wants to help you. In those three examples, do you see now how you can begin to wield this apostolic gift to every conceivable situation in your life? you see that? Number three, he wants us to share these gifts with every person that you meet. Whether they be people in your home, whether they be children under your roof, whether to be spouses that lie down in bed next to you, or Christians who come to church with you, or co-workers who sit next to you, mechanics who work on your car, people that work out with you. Christ has given a gift, a substantial gift, that he wants you to use and apply to every conceivable situation in life and that he wants you to wield in the lives of others. It's a substantial gift indeed that will set you free from your sins and give you a right relationship with God and allow you to live joy and freedom in this life and eternal bliss a gift, isn't it? Learn it, use it, and share it. Father, would you give us grace to yield these gifts? You've given them so freely to us. Yes, Lord, we must protect them. There are so many people who would take advantage of us. There are so many people who use their words to deceive. But not you, O Lord. You are truth. You're the embodiment of truth. You give us truth. Your word is truth. And in your word, there is life and liberty. There is a treasure beyond compare. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. May we protect it, of course. But may we wield it to your glory and our
Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.